good to be back with you. And as you're as you're turning there, and while I'm finding the right notes, so I preach the right sermon. Um, I do want to take time to to thank you for how welcoming you've been, how inviting you've been. It's uh, I think I've said this before, but it's always a privilege and an honor to preach God's word. But uh, you guys have been very receptive, and and it's been great getting to know getting to know you more than I already did. And I've really enjoyed my time here preaching with you, and I'm very thankful for Todd for entrusting that uh, trusting that to me. I think I've I think I've shared with you before that my wife and I we we foster. And at one point in time we've had four little ones ranging from the ages of three all the way down to, to six months in our home. There were three from one family, two brothers and a sister, and then one little guy um from another family. And one thing we learned while fostering is that nighttime can be a nightmare. Uh especially with especially with the two boys who were brothers because they would, for some reason, it's, it's like they could sense it around bedtime. They'd try everything they could to get out of going to bed. I want a snack. I need to use the bathroom 30 different times and, and all this stuff. And then we, we get them in there and we'll get them to, get them to lay down and, and we'll leave. And then the next thing we know, we hear them jumping up and down the bed. Or, or we hear older brother trying to talk little brother into crawling out of the crib. And just, just craziness would happen. And so we've, we tried so many things to get them to just lay down and go to sleep. Everything from, from taking their toys hostage to, to threaten to throw away all the donuts in the house. And nothing seemed to work. And we were, we were at our wit's end. And I don't remember if we came up with this idea or if we reached out and, and someone suggested that to us. But we found something that worked most of the time. And what we'd do is we'd go through our normal routine. We'd pray with them and, and maybe read them a story and then put them in bed. And then we'd turn out the lights. And instead of leaving, one of us would just sit on the floor next to the older brother's bed and just sit there in silence right next to him. Because little brother kind of, he just kind of followed older brother's lead. If little brother would lay down and be quiet, older brother would. If little brother was acting like a maniac, little brother would. But if we just... If we just sat down next to older brother's bed, maybe maybe held his hand, maybe sang a song, maybe not. I know my singing would give most people nightmares, but <laughs> for some reason he liked it. But if we just, just our presence, just knowing that one of us was near enough that if something happened before he fell asleep, we would be right there. And it worked, like I said, most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. Well, as I was thinking back on that, especially in, in perspective of the psalm that we've been working through and the specific stance we're going to be looking at this morning, it, it made me realize, or, or maybe brought into clearer view, the fact that ever since the garden, ever since the fall, ever since man said, God, I don't need you, I'm going to do it my own way, our greatest need, whether we know it or not, whether we know how to express it appropriately or not, whether we believe it or not, mankind's greatest need has been the nearness of God. It has been to be brought back into the presence of the Creator. And so what we're going to see in our text this morning as, as we look through it is we worship a God who draws near to His people. So if you would please stand in, in reverence for the reading of God's Word We'll be looking at verses 15 through 18 of Psalm 34. It says this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, 
and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Pray with me, please. Father God, once again, we are your people. We are gathered in your house to worship you, to magnify your Son and to lift him up, to read your word and to learn who you are. And we know, based on your word, that everything I speak, anything I say, if it doesn't have the Spirit, if the Spirit of God doesn't take that word and apply it to the hearts of people, then it is vain. It is useless. So I pray now that your spirit would work your word into the hearts of your people and transform them even more into the image of your son. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. We've been working through Psalm 34. And just to, just to give us a, a quick recap, Psalm 34, it is a psalm of worship. It is David, and as I pointed out earlier, it's, it's an acrostic. So it's David systematically working through the idea of worshiping this Lord, who this Lord is, and, and why we worship him. And so we looked at in the first three verses, our first time together, we looked at David's call to worship. And then we looked at in the second stanza, verses 4 through 7, that David worships this Lord who delivers his people. And then the next stanza, we see that David worships this Lord who provides for his people. And then there's a little bit of a change between verse 10 and verse 11, because up to verse 10, it's been more of an adoration just towards God and, and praising God. But he kind of turns to verse 11, and he starts almost as if he goes from, from leading worship to continuing the worship and preaching to man. And so you have, in verses 11 through 14, you have David expounding upon what this worship looks like in everyday life. In other words, we worship the Lord through living our life in fear of the Lord. And we talked about how that, was a, that wasn't a fear of, of being afraid of before the child of God. It's a fear of reverence. It's, it's a fear of respect and how it, it affects every single aspect of your life. And then this morning, we get to verses 15 through 18, and David the Holy Spirit through David reveals to us this, this beautiful truth that we worship the Lord who draws near to his people. But it's interesting the way the text reveals this to us because what we see is David lays out two categories of people. And he presents a contrast between those two categories of people. And this contrast gives us a dilemma. And then David the Holy Spirit through David resolves that dilemma for us. So first we're going to see the benefits for the righteous. Look at verse 15. David writes, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. And then jump to verse 17, where David continues, and he says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. David here says that the eyes are toward the righteous and his ears hear their cry. Now David here isn't just talking about God can see the righteous and God hears the righteous because we know we have a God who sees and hears everything. This, just isn't, this isn't just the truth that God objectively knows who they are, he objecti objectively knows where they are, and he objectively hears what's going on. He, he knows and hears every single thing. But what this is telling us is that God is intentionally 
turning his attention and his affections toward the righteous. It's as if he, he, he sees all humanity, he hears all humanity, but he pays special attention, special care toward this people, towards whom he calls the righteous. And those of you, I know I use a lot of parenting metaphors, but those of you who are parents can understand this, especially if you have, you have little ones, and you, you take them to a busy place. Let's say you take them to, to a park on Saturday. And there are, there are tons of kids at that park. And you hear, and you see all of those kids. But if you're a good parent, your eyes are constantly scanning that park to see, where's my child? And that's, it's not that you hate, it's not that, that you have any malice towards the other children. It's not that you're ignoring the other children. You may even know the other children. Maybe they, they go to school with your child or, or they come here to church or, or what have you. But your eyes and your ears are trained on where is my child? What's my child doing? Is, is my child safe? Does my child need me? And if you see your child fall down, if you hear your child cry out, whatever you're doing, you're going to stop and you're going to run to that child so that child knows that even if he can't see you, even if they don't know where you are at all times, you are near and you will see them, you will hear them, and you will attend to them. That's, that's David's point here when he, says, when he says the Lord's ears and eyes are toward the righteous and that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their trouble. He doesn't just hear them. He doesn't just see them. It wouldn't be any help to us if the Lord just sat back and he said, yeah, I hear you, I see you, I ain't going to do nothing about it. This is the Lord who, he hears us, he hears the righteous, he sees the righteous, and when the righteous cry to him for help, he's there, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. And you see a couple of examples in this, in Scripture. If you turn to Exodus chapter 2, this is an example of this on a grand scale. If you remember, the story of Exodus opens up, well, the story of Genesis ends with Joseph and his family coming into Egypt under the, the favor of, of Pharaoh, whom, uh, whom had this, this love for Joseph because Joseph had, had saved uh, Egypt and had proven to be a, a, a wise man, so Pharaoh had entrusted everything to Joseph. And, and so the people, the, the children of Jacob come into Israel, or come into Egypt, I'm sorry. They come into Egypt, but then Exodus opens up, and it's, it's years and years later, and we're told that Joseph has died, and we're told that the people, that Joseph's brothers, all the sons of Jacob had died, and the people of Israel had multiplied. But then in verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So this king did not have the same relational care for Joseph and for Joseph's family. He didn't have the same appreciation for the children of Jacob that the, previous, that the Pharaoh under whom Joseph came did. And so you know the story. They enslaved God's people. They enslaved the people of Israel. And even to the point where they were murdering their babies, murdering their baby boys. And then verse 23 we have this recorded. During those many days, the king, verse 23 of chapter 2, I'm sorry. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Jacob, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. He heard the groanings of the people of Israel. He saw the struggles of the people of Israel. He remembered his promises to the people of Israel, his promises he made to Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, and he knew. And the rest of the Exodus is the story of God acting to deliver his people. So that's kind of on a big scale of God God intentionally paying attention to these people. But then you see, even in Psalm 34 earlier, you see this individually uh, with David. In verse 6, we've already looked at this, so we won't look at it in, in uh, we, won't, we won't look at it too deeply, but in verse 6, David says, this, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David is looking back, first of all, immediately he's looking back to his deliverance from, from fleeing from Saul. And he's looking back at his deliverance. Even though he had to humiliate himself in front of this pagan king, he had to act like a maniac in front of this pagan king to escape. He sees that God delivered him out of the hands of this man who wanted, to, who, who would have, should have killed him because David was, was one who had destroyed so many Philistines. And yet, David says, This poor man cried, and the Lord delivered him out of all of his troubles. This is what David is talking about when he says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He, he sees the righteous. He intimately knows the righteous. His, he, his ears are toward their cry. He hears them when they cry out for help. And not only does he see, not only does he hear them, but as verse 17 tells us, he acts to deliver the righteous, to deliver them of all their troubles. There, are, there is the benefits of the righteous. But then you have contrasted to the benefits of the righteous the bad news for the wicked. Look at verse 16. And keep in mind everything you've heard about the righteous, how the God, is, God is, is especially paying attention to them. His eyes are toward them. His ears are toward them. He, he, when they cry, He delivers them. And then in verse 16, you have this in regards to the wicked. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Just imagine what that means. Just as amazing as it is that the Lord who created the universe, the Lord who spoke galaxies into existence, the Lord who is, who is controlling and sustaining all things right now, just as amazing as it is that His ears and His eyes are toward the righteous, how terrible it is. Terrible in the sense of it should strike terror in the hearts of the wicked. That the face of the Lord is intentionally against the evildoer. So much against the evildoer that its intention is to cut off the memory of the evildoer from the earth. Now this, this is a hard truth to proclaim and this is not a popular truth because a lot of people even Christians get it in our heads sometimes that God is some sort of celestial grandpa 
who, who you know, we, we do something wrong, just, just a little little skewing of the rules or whatever, and he, he looks over at his glasses. My grandpa would always do this. He'd look over the glasses and just kind of wink. Maybe say, don't tell grandma or something like that. And we get this idea of God that, yeah, he set up his law and his law is perfect and all that, but, you know, if you want to tell a little lie, that's fine. Or if you want to lust a little, that's, that's okay. If you want to covet something that's not yours, go ahead. God doesn't mind. He, he doesn't really care. But that's not the picture of God that we have in the Bible. The picture that we have in the Bible is not of a celestial grandpa who's really willing to, to wink at his perfect law being disobeyed. What we have is a perfect, holy, just God who sees every single sin as an offense to his perfect character. And he cannot look upon that sin, and he cannot look upon the one who commits that sin without complete, holy, and just hatred. Because an infinite, holy God has been sinned against by finite, rebellious human beings. You see this in Psalm chapter 5, if you'll turn back there. Psalm chapter 5 and look with me beginning in verse 4. And this is another Psalm of David. He writes, speaking to the Lord, For you, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. You abhor the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Wickedness cannot stand before God. God cannot stand wickedness. It has no place in the presence of a perfectly holy God. Have you... We won't turn there, but if you were to turn to Proverbs 15 and read Proverbs 15, you'll see that the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination. The ways of the wicked are an abomination. The very thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Unless you think that this is just an Old Testament thing, because that's another misconception a lot of people have, is, is the, God of old, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and just, and the God of the New Testament is a God of, of love and mercy. But really, they are the same God. The God of wrath and justice is the God of wrath of justice in the New Testament. And the God of love in the New Testament is the God of wrath and justice in the Old Testament. So if you turn to Revelation chapter 2, just to show that this, this isn't some arcane Old Testament idea that's, that's fallen out. In Revelation chapter 2, and this is when the risen Lord has appeared to the Apostle John. And he's delivering to John these messages to these seven churches. And he says, beginning in verse 6, this is his, his, in his letter to the church of Ephesus. He says in verse 6 of chapter 2, Yet this you have. In other words, this is, uh, he's gone over how they've, how they've left their first love. But then he says in 6, Yet this you have. In other words, this is what you've got going for you. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also 
hate. And I'm not going to get into who the Nicolaitans were and what their teachings were, frankly, because at this point right now, I don't know. But I know it was false teaching. It was, it was against the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus Christ, this isn't just any prophet. This isn't just the apostles. Although those were, their words would be good enough, this is the risen Lord himself, Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh, who is the second person of the Trinity. And he says, this you have going for you. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans just as I hate the work of the Nicolaitans. And he hates them. The, 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 the feeling towards the wicked, as you go back to Psalm 34, the feeling towards the wicked, his, his righteous anger towards the wicked is so much that the result of that righteous anger, that the result of that wrath, at the end of verse 16, is to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And you see this, you don't have to turn there, I'll turn it and read it to you, but you see the same idea in Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 is, is one of my uh, favorite psalms because it's Asaph dealing with the fact that the wicked seem to be growing, the wicked seem to be uh, prospering more than the righteous. And then in verse 18, he comes to this conclusion about the wicked. Psalm 73, 18, he says, Truly, speaking to God, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse, when you arouse, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. David's point in Psalm 34 and what Asaph is saying in Psalm 73 is those who are wicked and continue in their wickedness, those who are deemed as evil doers, they are like a dream that the Lord despises and when he awakes, it's like they're gone. I don't know about you, but I don't remember many of my dreams. In fact, a lot of my dreams, I might remember them as soon as I wake up and then I go to tell Elizabeth about it later on that day and it's just, it's gone. And the Lord says, the memory of the wicked, of the evildoers, of those who disobey his law, they will be like a dream. And when the Lord awakes, they're gone. So you have the benefits of the righteous, and then you have that contrasted with the bad news for the evildoers. And this is where we have our dilemma. Because the bad news for the evildoers evil is that this is how a, a, a God who is eternally just, eternally pure, eternally holy, feels about any who rebel against His goodness. And that's exactly what we have done. The dilemma comes because you have the benefits of the righteous the Lord sees and hears the righteous the Lord delivers the righteous when they cry you have the bad news for the wicked that the Lord has set his face against them and, and that his, they will be swept away the fate of the wicked is to have their memory wiped off of the face of the earth and we want to come to the psalm and we want to say yes I'm the righteous get rid of the wicked but we are the evil doers we are not the ones in ourselves in of ourselves we are not the ones to whom the Lord is turned towards we are the ones whom the Lord has set his face against 
Another psalm David points this out in Psalm 14. He says, and I love the picture of this, he says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek God. And the conclusion, they have all turned aside. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. When we come to Psalm 34, we do not find ourselves in the ranks of the righteous, but we find ourselves with all of fallen humanity, in our fallen state, in our sin, we find ourselves in the company of the evildoer. And this is the dilemma. Our greatest need is the nearness of God. Our greatest need is to once again be in the presence of our Creator. But His holiness will not allow himself to look upon our wickedness. His, his justice will not allow himself to let a sinner stand in his presence and live. And so along with the benefits of the righteous and the bad news for the wicked, we come to the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel. I think this is a beautiful verse. It's, it's a verse that every time I've read through the psalm preparing for these sermons, it's always struck me. Verse 18, David says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And in this verse, you have the resolution of the problem. You have the, the solution to the dilemma. You have the beauty of the gospel. And you see this illustrated in the life of Christ. Think about when Jesus came. Think about who, who tended to surround Jesus. In fact, in, there's, a, there's a, um, a story in Mark where, where Jesus, it's, it's right after he's, he's called Levi, and he's, he's dying with, with the, the text puts it, tax collectors and, and sinners. If you know anything about the way tax collectors were viewed back then, they were the wicked of the wicked. They were considered to be traitors. They were lower than dogs. Everyone hated the tax collectors. And then the Pharisees were seeing Jesus eat with the sinners and the tax collectors. And they said, said what's he doing? Doesn't he know who he's eating with? He's... Is this the man who eats with the sinners and tax collectors? Does he know what he's doing? And Jesus' response was, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Our dilemma was needing the nearness of God, but not being able to have the nearness of God because our wickedness. And God said, you can't stand before me. You can't come to me. So I will come to you in Jesus Christ. And when I come to you, when the second person of the Trinity, the, the incarnated Son of God, comes to you, He will be coming to call sinners to Himself. He will be coming to give sinners His righteousness. Because it's not the righteous who need, who need saving. It's not those who are perfectly healthy who need a physician. It is those who are brokenhearted. It is those who are crushed 
in their spirit, those who know their sin, know they have no hope, and then they see the beauty of Jesus, they see his perfectness, they see his righteousness, and they cry out, Lord, have mercy. You see the same kind of thing if you turn to Luke chapter 7. This is a little bit of a longer example. Luke chapter 7. It's the same kind of setup. Jesus is, Jesus is dining with one of the Pharisees. In Luke 7 verse 36 says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So there they are eating. And behold, a woman of the city, and listen how it describes her, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So you have Jesus sitting at the table of this Pharisee, the Pharisees who are thought to be the most righteous, the most holy. If anyone's going to get heaven based on their works, it would be the, the, uh, it would be the Pharisee. And then you have this woman, and the only description of her is she is a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed him with the anointment. So you have this woman, she's, she's broken hearted, she's crushed in spirit, she's weeping, literally washing Jesus' feet with her tears. And the Pharisee, the self-righteous one, he sees this and he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of this woman this is who touch, who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And then Jesus, we won't read the whole story, but Jesus tells in the next four, four verses, he, he tells the Pharisee the story about this man who, who, who owned, there are two men, one who owned 50 denarii and one who owned 500 denarii. And he says, he says one day the person they owed it to forgave it all, both of them. And he said, who's going to be more grateful? And the man rightly says, well, the one who was forgiven more. And then Jesus picks back up in verse 44. He says at the end of 43, you have judged rightly. And he picks up in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then he turns to this woman, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is the beauty of the gospel. The self-righteous man, those of us who are content to live in our sin and have deceived ourselves into thinking, oh no, I'm, I'm good, I, I do all the right things, I'm not too bad of a, too bad of a person, I'm not as bad as, as the next guy, I'm, I'll be alright when I get to heaven, I'll just explain and God will understand. Really? Really? 
You think the Lord of all the universe, the one who has given us his law that perfectly reflects his character, when you stand before him and he asks, why did you break my law? Why should I show any mercy, anything to you? You're going to say, oh, I just figured you'd understand. No. Our only hope Our only salvation isn't in our self-righteousness, isn't in our pride, isn't in holding on to ourselves. Our only hope is in being broken-hearted over our sin, is in being crushed because of the guilt that we have had. You want to avoid the bad news for the evildoers? You want to receive the benefits of the righteous? Look at your sin. Look at God's perfect law that you have broken time and time again. Look at how you have raised your fist to an infinite God and you have said, no, God, I will do it my way. Look at the wrath of God that was abiding upon you and if you are outside of Christ, it's still abiding upon you and be in terror. Be brokenhearted. Be crushed in your spirit by the weight of your sin and the weight of your guilt and the weight of having to stand before a just and holy God in yourself and cry out for mercy. Because I promise you, based on the word of God, based on the holy, inspired word of God, I promise you, the person who finds themselves in that state, whatever they've done, no matter how big of a sinner they think they are, no matter how wicked they have been, no matter how much of an evildoer they are, the man or woman who finds themselves in that state, broken for their sin, crushed in spirit because of the judgment of God, and they cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Save my soul. The Lord will hear that cry, and He will deliver that person of all of their troubles. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the only way. People who were once considered wicked, people who were once considered evildoers can be considered righteous. Not because of our righteousness. Not because of anything that I can do. If it was based on my righteousness, I should be in hell right now for the rest of eternity. But based on the perfect righteousness of the crucified and risen again Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself. Because of His work on the cross. Those who were once evildoers, those who once were on the way to have their whole memory wiped off of the face of the earth can now say the Lord's eyes are toward me. The Lord's ears are turned toward me. The Lord hears my cry. This poor man cried out and he delivered me from from all of my troubles. That is the beauty of the gospel. I I listened to a lot of podcasts and I was listening to one and it's over in England and they they interview different people, popular Christians, what what have you. And this one man, I never heard of him before, but apparently he had been a, a gangster. I don't remember if it was England or Ireland, but he had been a gangster and been really violent. And he he always got away. And he said he always justified by saying, "Oh well, we're the good guys. We we do things professionally. Sure, we we might beat a guy up or bust his kneecaps or whatever, but they're the bad guys. They they deserve it." And then one day the law caught up to him, and I don't remember what the circumstances were, but he ended up going to prison. And there was a man who would, who would come and do ministry at this prison. 
And he said the only reason he went, I just thought this was funny, the only reason he went is because he knew that they'd have, they'd have food when he went. And he knew that Christians closed their eyes when they pray. So he said, I'm just going to wait till they pray, and then I'm going to stuff my pockets and take it back to the jail cell. But the man who was, who was there ministering to him, he read this passage to him. It's Ezekiel chapter 18. And after reading this passage and explaining the gospel to this man, the man is now a Christian. He's now out of the prison, and he now own, runs his own present prison ministry called Escape. And I heard the passage, and I thought, that is an excellent passage to, to use Sunday morning, and so I am. And Ezekiel chapter 18, and verse 26 this is, or we'll start in verse 25. This is the Lord reasoning with the people of Israel. And, and just stop to think about the fact that, that, that the Lord who has all knowledge, the Lord who has all power, the Lord who can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, He's reasoning with, with people. He has no obligation. And yet He is. In verse 25, He says to them, Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. And that's what happened in the garden. That's how humanity got into this mess. And we have continued in our sin happily. But then verse 27. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered, and he turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my, my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, uh, everyone according to his ways declares the Lord of God repent and turn from all of your transgressions lest iniquity be your ruin cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit why will you die O house of Israel for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord God so turn and live because of the garden, because of the righteous who walked away, we were the evildoers, we were the wicked. Because of Christ, because of his work on the cross, we can turn away from our transgressions, we can turn away from our sins, and we can go from doing the wicked to doing what is just, what is right, and what is true. And I say to you, if you are here, and you are not in Christ, if you are here and you are not hidden in him as, you, as your refuge, I say to you what the Lord says in Ezekiel chapter 18 when he says, Why will you die? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Turn and live. There's the benefit for the righteous. The Lord's eyes and ears toward you. The creator of the universe paying special attention and placing his affections upon you. There's the bad news for the wicked. That his face will be turned against them and their memory will be wiped off of the face of the earth. And there's the beauty of the gospel. That in Christ, the wicked can become 
the righteous, can be declared righteous so that now we can stand before a holy, just God dressed in the righteousness of Christ and say, you are my father because I plead the blood of Jesus, your son, who died for me. I'll pray and then the praise team can come up. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of this psalm for your spirit placing these words in the mind and heart and 